You're listening to episode 38 of Fearless Rebel Radio. If you have ever suffered from disordered eating or food fears or restriction with food, then you definitely don't want to miss this episode where I chat with Kelly Bowes, who overcame a 17-year battle with anorexia. We talk all about how she overcame that her how she overcame a fear of shame and redefining success and weight in our society. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to head to summerinandin.com or thebodyimagecoach.com to grab your free rule breakers guide to rocking your bod, where you'll get 10 missions to complete right now to help you ditch dieting and love your body. Let's get started with the show. Rebel Radio, baby! I am your host, Summer Inanin, a certified nutritional practitioner, diet rebel, and food lover on a mission to help you feel hot damn fearless in your body. Fearless Rebel Radio is here to empower you to defy the standards and break the rules in order to radiate confidence, relish in your uniqueness, and live life fearlessly on your own terms. Every episode, I will help you to do this by sharing practical advice not-so-PG-rated rants and interviews with fearless rebel guests. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, I'm very excited for today's guest because she's someone that I've been following, stalking, and chatting with for a while, and we've been trying to schedule this podcast for a few months, so I'm super excited to have her here today. Today on the show, I have Kelly Bowes. After winning her 17-year battle with anorexia, Kelly Bowes turned her life's focus to helping others to do the same. Kelly is a holistic nutritionist specializing in eating disorder recovery and helping people heal their challenged relationships with food and the body. She is also a writer and a speaker, and she spoke at TEDx, and hopes to inspire others to make peace with food and find freedom in their own lives. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, um, for some reason, every time I say your name, I feel like saying, Kelly. (laughs) I like it. I'll take it. You know that? Have you ever seen that movie with Anna Faris? I think it's called House Bunny, where she, in order to yes. remember people's names, she she says them back. And I feel like maybe one of the names she says is Kelly, and she says it like that. And so maybe that's why that's in my head. But that's awesome. Anyways, Kelly, let's uh, before we <laughs> dig into this anymore, can you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, um, uh, my eating disorder started when I was probably 11. It started sort of looking more like a diet than anything else and just progressed through my teen years and I did a couple of hospitalizations and uh, still kept relapsing. So finally it came down to sort of a do or die type thing and I uh, found what worked for me and kicked my way through it and then was mad that no one was doing nutrition in a way that I wanted it done in my own life. And, you know, kept saying, you know, why is nobody doing this? Why is nobody doing this? And then I looked around and realized, okay, so if you're this pissed off about it, you should probably go and do it. Mm -hmm. And so how do you manage to be, uh, you know, a nutritionist without being rigid or disordered with it? Because I feel like, 
you know, when we talk about recovering from eating disorders, you know, it, often it's like, okay, well, just we just need you to eat. But so how does how like how do you incorporate nutrition into that, or how where did you see there was a need for that? Well, a lot of people who are recovering from eating disorders are in a situation similar to myself where, you know, the disorder started when they were so young that they never sort of learned to have any relationship with food. Mm. Um, so a lot of it's just trying to, like, if, you know, the only nutrition that's been modeled for them is maybe a family member's distorted relationship with food or what they see, you know, in weight loss blogs or whatever, then they're not going to know what sort of normal eating looks like. And uh, so what I do is basically just trying to build them uh, a way to transition sort of safely from what they are doing into, um, into a normal eating plan that includes the fear foods, that includes the foods they love, that includes foods that are going to, you know, help keep them healthy, but not in a rigid, restrictive way, just in a like, you know, you do need some protein today, so how about you go find that? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. And did you find that easy for yourself to balance, like, even when you were studying nutrition without sort of going down a rabbit hole of trying to be too rigid with yourself? Yeah, I mean, I sort of uh, was coming out, like, I came out of anorexia into orthorexia, which is the mm-hmm. absolute obsession with healthy eating. And... um so then going to school and trying to heal from the orthorexia at the same time was a little bit crazy making mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, you're surrounded by all of the yeses and nos and no gray area and what nutrition should be and trying to come up with your own rules for food that don't involve rules. So I think it was almost good for me to go through school that way because because I had to challenge it for my own healing, now I know how to challenge it for people who may be experiencing the same things. Yeah. And so how, like how, so how does that work? How do you make that work for yourself? Well, in the beginning it was just, um, you know, I would have one day a week where I would go and I would get something that scared me and I would sit and I would cry and I would, you know, choke my way through it, but I would do it. And then the next week I would do it again and I had it sort of scheduled that way. And then those things stopped being so scary once I, you know, well, okay, I did, you know, a muffin last week, so what's a cupcake this week? And, you know, it started to become almost a routine. And then uh, my next step from there was sort of um, just sort of understand that if I was afraid of something, that was probably a food I should eat within the next week. Okay. So, you know, I was walking home and there's uh, at Eglinton subway station in Toronto, there's a Cinnabon. And if I smelled the Cinnabon, I was like, oh, my God, I really want a Cinnabon. And naturally, my fear response would come up that, no, that was not an okay food. So within the next week, I would make sure to eat that Cinnabon at some point. Okay. And is that how you help people, like sort of guiding them to overcome some of those fears? Yeah, it it's, you know, just moving into it slowly and in a safe way. So, you know, you start with, um, you know, challenging small things. And then as they build strength and confidence in themselves, as they, as they challenge these things, then it's possible to sort of move on to the bigger things and the scarier things until they can eat pretty much whatever they want. Okay, nice. And let's go back to your story a bit because I'd mm-hmm. love to just know more about it. 
you mentioned you were 11 years old and it sort of looked like a diet. So how, how did that begin for you? Well, it was a combination of being on a swim team that, you know, it was the New Year's challenge was every month to give up a different junk food uh, for the year. And I wasn't sure if that meant, you know, give up one one month and a different one the next month, or if that meant give up one and then progressively keep giving up more and more junk food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my brain being a little bit perfectionistic, I was like, I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to do it and do it so well. So I just kept giving things up until a uh, few things were left and I would, you know, cut out things and cut down portions and what looked like healthy eating to me, but uh, quickly grew into a very dangerous uh, disease. And what was that born out of for you? I mean, when you started to say, okay, well, I'm like, I'm a perfectionist. I'm just going to, you know, keep cutting out one food a month. Like, was that, did that come from a sense of, um, like you, you know, you did you want to lose weight or, you know, where, where did that sort of stem from when you were that young? Well, if you'd asked me then, I would have absolutely said it was just about losing the weight, but Mm -hmm. looking back on it, it's, um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that nobody's body image gets to a state of being so chronically bad if there isn't something devastatingly wrong with their self-image and their self-confidence. Um, and I think for me it was tied to, you know, I uh, went through a lot of abuse as a child and I've always said I was just born with no self-confidence. Like I refused to walk until I was sure I could do it perfectly. And I think all of those things sort of just came together to make me this perfectly susceptible to eating disordered person. Yeah, that's so, um, you know, that's so interesting. And I think that, you know, you said, you said something so prominent there is that it's not just about the weight. And, um, you know, I think you wrote about that recently, like, I think, you know, in one of your posts, you questioned whether body image is really the cause of disordered eating and that you suggested that perhaps that's just a symptom. Yeah, I really think it is. I think if any time you ask someone to go deeper and say, you know, um, so why are you dieting? Because I want to lose weight. Okay, why do you want to lose weight? So I'll be more attractive. Okay, so what happens when you're more attractive? Well, I'll get a boyfriend. Well, okay, so you're not really trying to lose weight. It's not really about your body. It's about feeling worthy of love or feeling like someone's going to be attracted to you. And all of those ideas are a lot more scary than what your body looks like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you ask just about anyone who's, you know, trying to diet and lose weight. Okay. So, um, if you were the last person on this planet, no one else was around, would you still be doing the same things you're doing to your body? chances are that's a big no and it has to tie into something else with people around. You know, it's so interesting that you brought up that question. I actually like I said that to somebody recently and I don't I don't know where it came from. <laughs> like maybe I came maybe you said that to me before and it came from a conversation, but I feel like that's like one of the most profound questions that you can ask yourself is like if mm. if no one else was on this earth and it was just you like, would you still be treating your body this way? Like, would you still care about what your thighs looked like or, you know, a need to yeah. restrict food? And uh, the response can reveal so much, but I don't think enough people ask that of themselves because you're just so into it and this, it's just so normal to want to lose, mm-hmm. that, to want to lose that weight 
or yeah, it's the absolute societal norm is, you know, why aren't you trying to lose weight? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I often find like in working with women, it's just, it's like any element of their life, you know, whether it's like relationships or money or, um, like sexuality or whatever it is, like if something's out of alignment, mm-hmm. then that generally is kind of at a root of some of the body image issues, which then drives the diet issues, um, because it becomes something we can fix. Like it's something tangible that we can fix. So we get attached to that, um, versus like, and so that's why even like thinking, you know, just saying like positive mantras to yourself, like I am beautiful. Like that's one reason why it doesn't always work is because, Mm Like rewiring your brain is only a small piece of the puzzle until you can actually uncover like that real root stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's just this deep well that, you know, you have to do a lot of digging to sort of get to the bottom of and it's, it's not always fun. It's a little bit painful. Yeah. And so how did like, how, you know, what was your journey through that, that deep well and, and healing some of those wounds? Yeah, I found a therapist that, uh, well, I went through a few therapists, but I finally found one that um, would basically kick my ass <laughs> because I I have a tendency to, you know, manipulate therapists to uh, save my disorder. Like, that's what a lot of people with their eating disorders, that's how it's, you know, sort of described is... Um, having this thing that's fighting for its own life. So you're going to lie, you're going to manipulate, even if that's not a normal part of your personality or what you would do in a normal situation to save this disorder. You're going to, you're going to be a person you might not otherwise be. So, uh, I could, I found I could wrap any therapist around my finger and just never have to do any work. And then I found one who just wouldn't like, would call me on all my bullshit. And, um, and so she, in working with her, I was sort of forced to confront all of the issues that I didn't want to confront and uh, talk about the things that I would have rather just taken to my grave secretly. And uh, and in doing so, you know, they, um, her saying was always, our secrets keep us sick. And mm-hmm. um, so by, you know, letting all of those out, what felt like it was absolutely going to destroy me at the time ended up just making those things so much less of a presence in my mind and in my life that I was able to do some healing. And, and uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just for me, it also, you know, I reached a point where I was doing the work and doing the work and I sort of hit a roadblock. And then that's sort of where the nutrition piece comes in because until I fixed, you know, the fact that I had absolutely no fatty acids in my system and the fact that my digestion was broken and I couldn't absorb any of the nutrients I was eating, then my brain didn't sort of start to catch up chemically. Um, so that's a huge piece of what I work with too is, is trying to fix those things so you can actually do the work you need to do. It's a, it's a, it's a team effort. Yeah. And so how do you balance that in terms of prioritizing nutrition without creating a disordered relationship with food when you work with people? Yeah, um, I think it's by building on what they actually would naturally gravitate towards in terms of food choices in a non-disordered way. Like if McDonald's is your favorite food, then absolutely McDonald's is going to be incorporated into your life in some way, shape, or form. Um, But maybe not an everyday thing. And just sort of balancing what I like to call physical health foods with mental health foods. 
So yes, you know, kale may be fantastic for your physical health, but not a lot of people are going to be ridiculously happy eating nothing but kale in their everyday life. And not everybody should be eating kale, depending on what else is going on in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, your I, I use cupcakes in general. I mean, there can be very healthy cupcakes, but a cupcake may not be the best food for your physical health. But if you're feeling deprived without a cupcake, and if the cupcake, you know, is something that brings you together at, you know, a birthday party or something. It makes you included in life. It's uh, something that brings you joy to have in your life. Then that's really important for your mental health. So just trying to trying to create that understanding with people. Yeah, it's a tough thing to balance, I think, especially if people have um, like a lot of, you know, food sensitivities or things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big challenge for sure, but, um, you know, finding ways to have, have you know, the mental health foods within your food challenges or your food restrictions, you can find a recipe for just about anything that's completely allergen-free nowadays. It's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome, <laughs> especially, like, in some of the, I know where you live and I know where I live, it's, like, <laughs> it's no problem. Yeah. Like, I can find cupcakes made of, like, probably kale if I needed to. <laughs> yeah, someone someone uh, gave me a kale cookie the other day and it was just not good. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where the line gets drawn. That is not an okay thing to put in my cookie. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, your, your weight obviously like fluctuated quite a bit during your recovery, I'm assuming, um, you know, how, like what was sort of one of the worst periods for you? What was that like for you? Well, funnily enough, it was at my lowest that I knew I looked disgusting and I just, I didn't recognize my body. I didn't recognize my eyes when I looked in the mirror. It just, it wasn't me. It was somebody else's bones, it was somebody else's body, it was somebody else's eyes looking back at me. So that part was terrifying. Mm -hmm. And then just sort of, there were stages and uh, landmarks along the way that were sort of my like, I will never get over this weight again. Oh, well, I'm over this weight. Crap. And just those things that were challenging. And I find uh, for me, I'd done it in the past where I'd, you know, gained a chunk of weight and then plateaued and then gained another chunk of weight. And I found that always more difficult because you have to, you know, you get used to it, you buy clothes, you get used to it, you understand that this is your body now, okay, I've made my peace, and then all of a sudden it jumps again. But if you do it a little more steadily and just sort of keep gaining to where you need to go, then you never really get comfortable until you're done, and then you get comfortable. And I mean, it takes a while, no matter what, no matter where you end up, it's a terrifying thing. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's also a body you don't recognize. It's a body you haven't been in, in years, if ever. Um, and you have to learn sort of what it's all about. And often for people with, um, the anorexia side of eating disorders, you know, it's going through puberty for the, you know, 20th time in your life that's, it still really sucks when you're doing it in your 20s, you know? Puberty's no fun for anyone. Yeah, and so was there, like, a big turning point in your recovery? Like, was there a moment where you felt like you were sort of, you had turned a corner and you were on that path to to healing? 
it's one of those things that you never really notice the progress you're making until you look back. Mm -hmm. And so every step I was like, oh, I still have so much farther to go. I'm still miserable. I've still got all this. But then if you turn and look at where you've come from, you're like, oh, well, I can leave the house now. That's exciting. Oh, I can actually go out with friends. Look, I'm actually eating a meal with a friend. That's huge. And when you can recognize where you've come from, it becomes so much more of a, more of a celebration than, uh, than anything else. Yeah, that's so good. I'm And I'm so happy you said that because I think it's so important that we always look back and see how far we've come. You know, whether we are healing from something, you know, like uh, an eating disorder or whether we are just starting to, you know, love ourselves for whoever we are. Like, it's it's just small things start to add up over time because it's not like a huge transformation. It's like just these little things that you start to notice and without taking a moment to really look back and think, wow, I, I never would have done that before or, you know, I never would have eaten that food at that party or I never would have gone out in public and wear, and worn that outfit that I think it's just so important to recognize and celebrate that. Absolutely. And with lasting healing, like if it's going to stick around, it's going to be a slow healing process. There's not going to be some like giant okay I'm fixed and like there's no magic pill that does that and if it is it's probably means you're gonna fall back off wherever whatever wagon you've climbed onto Mm -hmm. at some point so in doing it slowly it feels like it's you know you haven't made any progress but unless you look back and see where you've come from yeah I read this beautiful blog post by Mara Glatzel that she wrote uh I think this week and it was just about like instant gratification and how you know we just we want instant gratification but that that's not you know that's really not what the journey is like it's just you know it's it's a series of small things like just continually putting one foot in front of the other and Mm -hmm. um she has a beautiful way of writing I love her writing so yeah it was really good um Okay, so let's talk about, you know, how you had to obviously gain weight. And I know before we started recording, you you had mentioned, um, you were telling me about the topic that you spoke about at TED. Mm-hmm. And um, do, you want, do you want to just talk about, tell everyone about what you sort of spoke about? And we can just dig into that topic a little bit more because I think it's such an important thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll start off by saying that you can't actually find my TED Talk online because the audio didn't record. Um, so that sucks. It's all right. I, there's things I would change when I do it next time. So it's just new goals. Um, but in terms of the, uh, in the topic for the evening was redefining success and failure. And, you know, for me coming up, gaining weight in a recovery world, it's very different than how success and failure are defined in the real world where, you know, everyone's definition of success is being thinner, not everyone, but for a vast majority of people, the definition of success is weight loss, is getting thinner, is looking more toned, looking more whatever. And for someone recovering from an eating disorder, that can't be anywhere in your consciousness. Like you are, in a lot of cases, focused on gaining weight. Uh, in a lot of cases, focused on exercising less often and, you know, maybe losing some of that defined look that a lot of the media celebrates. And just coming to terms with, you know, saying, yeah, okay, so that person over there is on a diet and is 
losing weight and is muscular and is everything I want to be, but that can't be my goal anymore. And just how to, you know, you have to create your own definition of healthy and give yourself permission to, you know, you don't know what's coming out your body the other side. You don't know what it's going to be shaped like. You don't know what it's going to look like, but just trusting that it's, you know, you need to find healthy from the inside and accept whatever package that comes in on the outside. Oh, that's so good. And, um, you know, how did you manage that for yourself? Like, was there anything that helped you to create that definition of healthy? Not really. I just cried a lot. (laughs) Big ugly cry. Yeah. you, You know, it's, um, I would, you know, look at myself in the mirror and think how, you know, I looked like a linebacker, that everything was just big and broad, and then, you know, another 10 pounds later, I'd look at pictures from that time and be like, oh my god, I was still so skinny then, and it just, you know, that almost helped knowing that what I see in the mirror is never quite accurate, so just trusting that you know, I don't, I'm never going to know really what's going on with my body in a clear picture. So I should just do whatever is going to make me, you know, as sane as possible to deal with it. Because if I'm in a place of absolute misery where I'm starving and uncomfortable and restricting and just putting all of these mental blocks on myself, then I'm never going to be happy with what the package looks like anyhow. But if I can, you know, get my mind uh, to the best, healthiest possible self, then I can accept whatever the body looks like. Yeah, wow, that's really cool how you frame that up in terms of prioritizing your mind over your body, because I think that's really what it comes down to, is like, and putting that back into alignment. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, even having my mind being probably the healthiest it's ever been. Like, there's still things I dislike about my body, but it's no longer that pathological need to fix it. It's, you know, it's not something to be fixed. It's just, you know, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's what my cellulite looks like, and there it is. Okay, I've got it. I don't like it, but it's there, and I'm not going to try and, like, destroy it with lasers and crazy (laughs) lasers I yeah don't even know what <laughs> melt it with acid you know sharks with lasers on their heads yes <laughs> um no actually uh the, what you just said was so uh was i think is so important for people to understand is that you know and especially because like i consider myself you know like i'm like i am i'm a body image coach like that's what i coach women with mm-hmm. um but that doesn't mean that you have to like every or love every aspect of yourself. Like it's just acceptance doesn't mean that you have to love like every bit of your appearance. I mean, God, mm-hmm. I wish I wish I had longer legs and, you know, I would be too, um, <laughs> much better runner. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I I've, I've got big thighs but that's not to me that's just it's and I don't see it as a flaw anymore it's just like that's just there that's what is I've accepted it I'm grateful for like what it can do and my capacity of of you know what my body enables me to do 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you summed it when you, uh, perfectly when you said that you no longer have a pathological, pathological need to, to fix it. Cause that was it. Yeah. It was that pathological need to fix it. And it was obsessive for, for me as you know, for me too. Yeah. I think for just about everybody, you know, there's that, okay, this is wrong. So fix it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And one uh, thing that when I get into those sort of states of being, I, I think about as a kid, I was told a lot that you don't have to like everybody, but you have to love everybody. And that, you know, drove me nuts as a kid and it still drives me a little nuts now. But in terms of my body, okay, cool. I look in the mirror. I don't have to like everything I see, but I still have to treat my body with love, all of the parts. I still have to feed it all. I still have to, you know, make sure it's clean and well cared for. I still have to, you know, make sure it's moving well. It's not in pain. All of these things that are acts of loving, but I don't have to like it. Oh, I love that. That's so good. That's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I am totally going to, uh, use that again and reference you, but <laughs> that's uh no, it's such a good way of putting it. Yeah. Because when, even if you don't like something, you can still treat it with love and respect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the more that you treat things with love and respect, the, I guess like that, that dislike becomes a smaller proportion of it. Like it's not like, it doesn't affect me in any way. Like I know. Yeah. It just doesn't change. It doesn't change my, the way I show up in this world or what I do at all. Whereas before it used to be like something that would absolutely change everything. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. It dictated everything. Food choices, like, you know, where I went socially, what I did socially. How many hours you spent getting into clothes in front of the mirror, trying to figure out the one that makes that part of your body look the least offensive. Yeah. The fact that I would like go, you know, be out all night partying and then still go to the gym and spend like three hours on an elliptical. (laughs) That, that was not healthy. Torture chamber. (laughs) Yeah. That was not healthy. Uh, did you have an unhealthy relationship with exercise as well? Oh God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a I had a an at home exercise system, and I was pretty much chained to it. Mm. Yeah, just in a very unhealthy way, and um, that was another thing that sort of going deeper with it helped me to heal. It was I had read a passage about uh, shame, and. You know, um, a lot of times with eating disorders, the word fear is applied to a lot of things, but shame I hadn't really thought of before. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of, you know, getting off the bike, it was, well, if anyone found out that I didn't work out today, I would feel so ashamed. I wouldn't, I wasn't afraid of anything, but I was afraid of feeling ashamed. So applying shame to those pieces as opposed to fear really made it real for me and made it something that was sort of tangible and made me understand that it was deeper than the behaviors, the symptoms, and what was going on, you know, how I wanted my body to look. It was about, you know, the shame of my body looking a certain way or the shame that I would feel if someone knew that I, you know, ate a grape or the shame I would feel if, you know, someone asked me if I'd worked out that day and I had to say no. Like, it was just, that sort of helped me to go, okay, well, why the hell am I ashamed of that? Like, 
it doesn't what they think of me shouldn't really affect why I'm absolutely torturing myself and so that piece helped me to sort of slowly get off the bike as it were yeah wow that's such a good way of putting it it makes uh yeah, it, it's such a it's a, such a good perspective because I think it is. It's that fear of shame. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really thought about it that way. That's interesting. It's so good. Um, and so when you had to, you know, step off the bike and start eating these foods that you were afraid of, and obviously gain weight as a result, how did you manage people's comments? about your you know about food or your body like did people say things to you like oh you're looking so much healthier or oh it's good to see you eating like how how did you manage that um you know by the time I did it the last the final like nail in the coffin to the eating disorder time I had been up and down in recovery so many times that the comments didn't phase me anymore, but in early recovery, absolutely, like, in my teen years, had the power to destroy my day if, you know, someone said, oh my god, you look so much healthier than that, was just, you look fat, you look fat. If someone said, you know, uh, oh, you don't want to eat this, and I actually did want to eat that, then I would feel really ashamed about the fact that I wanted to eat this food that they thought clearly I wouldn't want because, you know, because it was not a quote-unquote healthy food. And, um, yeah, so being able to... It took a long time to be able to sort of have a voice to that and say to people, well, actually, I, uh, I have an eating disorder and this is what's healthy for me right now. And um, even if you don't like to say, you know what, that really doesn't help me like you saying this to me doesn't really help me in my uh in my own journey with food or you know just accepting it as a compliment when they say that you look so much better like just trying to frame it as what did they mean or even asking them like okay so when I when you said to me that I look so much healthier I heard you say you look fat now what did you actually mean by that did you think I looked fat or were you just saying healthier Mm -hmm. and you know, if you stop sort of projecting what you're afraid of onto the person, sometimes you hear something different than what you were expecting to. Yeah, so you actually would have to just sort of speak up and clarify it, which I think would be really hard. It is, yeah. It's like nothing about this process of healing is fun. It's it's just not. And I think that's where a lot of people get caught up because you look at people who've, you know, I would look at people who'd succeeded and say, well, there must be some secret of how they did it because if they had to go through what I w- I'm going through right now, then there's no way in hell they would have recovered. And then I went through the hell and did recover. And I think that's a big stopping point is knowing that, you know, you have to do the terrifying things. Well, no, I'm looking for the shortcut around that. There's got to be one. No, you just got to go through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you wrote a beautiful post about grieving your eating disorder, which talked about, you know, one of the reasons eating disorders are so hard to recover from is because on one hand, you know, they torture us, but on the other, they serve a purpose in our lives. What was that purpose in your life or, you know, that you see it serve in other people's lives? Yeah, for me, it was a lot of um, 
It was a lot of anxiety control. It helped just sort of numb out all those emotions. Um, it was a way to torture myself because I didn't believe that I deserved good things. So if I could, if I could take care of the torture on my own, then no one else would torture me. So that was that sort of protection thing. And, you know, yeah, it's very strange. All those things. Like I felt like, I felt like the eating disorder was my safety net that no one would want to hurt me if I was sick because everybody pities a sick person that, you know, I wouldn't get unwanted attention from men if I didn't look like a woman. Like, if I was a stick person, then there was nothing to attract unwanted attention. Um, it was just, the eating disorder represented safety in my life. I thought it was protecting me from this crazy, terrible and wonderful world, but, uh, you know, in the end, it it doesn't. There's just, you know, coming to terms with that, with that and knowing that um, the protection I thought I had was gone was very, very difficult for me and was something that I definitely had to grieve that I was all alone in this world without any protection whatsoever. But then in recognizing that I was able to sort of build in, well, this is safe for me. This is a safe thing for me. This makes me feel safe in a safe way in, as opposed to a, an eating disorder, torturous way. Mm-hmm. So, so in owning those parts that, yeah, no, I feel really awful without this. Okay. How can I fill that need without using eating disorder techniques for it? Yeah. And what are some of those things that you did to fill those needs for yourself? Um, connecting with people for the most part. Um, eating disorders are very isolating. You spend a lot of time, if not physically alone, alone in your head, counting calories, counting minutes you've exercised, counting, you know, thinking about, okay, well, if I'm having this now, then I can't have that later, or I have to exercise this much. It's just, you're completely alone. But if you can make connections with people, you learn, you learn more about humanity. You learn who are the safe people, who are the people to trust. You build a community of people who make you feel loved and you can actually accept that love without the block of self-harm in front of it, you know. Because if you're torturing yourself, you can't accept love from anyone else because there's this big, like, wave of torture. If you're not taking in love from any, from, in all aspects of your life, you're not taking it in anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so it's mostly building with people and then building activities that connect you to people like going to classes or you know finding a community of people who've been through similar things as you and having them to you know as your touchstones and um finding purpose like I wouldn't have been able to go back to school and do the work I'm doing if I hadn't fully recovered because people are smart they're not going to believe you if you're still you know throwing up in a corner when uh you're telling them not to you know right yeah, I think that you, the community piece is is so important, and I I feel like people get really stuck on that because they don't want it. like that's hard for people. Hmm. Yeah, it is hard. That's just all there is to it. Like healing is hard. Mm-hmm. It's it's just you have to constantly be pushing boundaries that 
you swore you never would doing my uh, motto for the past two years has been if it scares you go do it yeah. so uh that's you know that's the only way to grow grow your life is to you know go to a class that absolutely terrifies you go up and say hi to someone that you maybe would be afraid to normally just pushing those boundaries is literally the only way to move those boundaries that's such a good motto I love it. <laughs> it's, it's led to some pretty awesome things. <laughs> yeah. What are some? What do you want to mention? Any of those things? What were some of the best? Yeah. Well, doing the doing the TED talk was actually one. Um, the the particular TEDx King Street West had started following me on Twitter, and um, they tweeted about applying for applying to do it and I you know laughed myself and said ha that thing that would scare me more than anything in the world and then my motto immediately kicked into my head and went oh shit <laughs> it scares me so I'm going to apply well it's fine I'm not going to get it I'm going to you know I'll submit an application I did it at like 11 o'clock at night on a Friday <laughs> and a day later got an email back asking me if I wanted to do it and uh yeah that's amazing yeah, so that was pretty awesome, and you know, I uh, did traveling that I never thought I would ever get to do. Um, I've done so many awesome things in the past few years. I feel like I've crammed more life into my recovery years than I ever did into the rest of my years put together. Oh, that's so good. And I mean, you're pretty open about talking about your story. How important was it for you to share your story? Um. I think it, I think sharing your story is one of the most, like, even if it's not on sort of a global scale, if it's even just with one other person, I think that's one of the most paramount things to recovery in any sense. You know, if, if you've got this awful stuff burning inside of you and nobody else knows about it, then that's just perpetuating the shame cycle. And shame is the enemy of health, you know, it's, um, if you've got things that you're so afraid to tell anyone else about because they're, you know, shameful that they say it says something about you that this thing has happened in your life or that you've done this thing or whatever it is. If those things are all stuck on the inside, then you're just going to have this like burning, festering ball of shame inside of you. So um, being able to share that is is so huge for healing. And for me, on a bigger scale, too, like, coming from, I was an actor for, I don't know, the first 25 years of my life, um, and knowing that I had the ability to speak um, reasonably well, I mean, there's a lot of ums in here right now, but uh, I knew that having grown up not really seeing anyone who had recovered from an eating disorder and looked like they were having a fun life um, made me want to represent that person for other people who were recovering because, you know, most of the people I met still looked very much terrified behind their eyes and still looked like they were living in some form of prison. And I thought if recovery looked like that, then it wasn't really worth it. So for me to stand up and say, yeah, I've recovered and I'm going to go climb a mountain over here now. Okay, bye. Like that's, that I think that's what I would have wanted to see as someone who didn't want to recover because it looked awful. 
Oh, and I'm so happy that you are that role model and that you that that you are representing that. And I know, obviously, Kyla is a good friend of yours, Kyla Prince from Finding Our mm-hmm. Hunger, too. And I think um, she's such a good role model and representation Absolutely. of that as well. Uh, posting her pole dancing photos <laughs> that are amazing. just like phenomenal. <laughs> I can't it's believe so great. the positions that she can get her body into. It's just like, oh, it's crazy. I know. It makes me want to do it. I'm just like, oh my God, I want to be able to hold myself upside down like that. It's so cool. Yeah. I don't want the bruises so much, but the rest of it looks awesome. Oh, are there lots of bruises? Oh my God, so many bruises. I'm sure, actually. Yeah, I'd probably crack my skull knowing me, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you are that that role model because um, I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, if you don't have a role model, someone to just, like, emulate, be inspired by when you're going through something like this, like, if you don't see someone who's gone from point A to point B, then it's you know, it's scary to, to walk that path on your own. So I, you know, Absolutely. having the courage to share that and to say, let look, like I have this, you know, fulfilling life and I do these scary things now. And, um, uh, you know, and I've recovered, like I'm, you know, do you consider yourself recovered or are you still in recovery? Oh, yeah. No, I am recovered. I'm 100% recovered. Like, yeah. I feel like I have, you know, every once in a while I'll have these things that come into my mind and I'm like, oh, is that an eating disordered thought? But it's just, you know, it's society like mm-hmm. to have that moment of, oh, maybe I should eat less is just the voice that society is in our heads now. Um, and I just, you know, say fuck you to it and uh, all is well. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, so stuff like that never goes away completely, like those niggly little things. And well, I don't think you'd be human if they did go <laughs> away completely, you know? Yeah, you'd be living, like, on an island somewhere by yourself, like, just, you know, yeah. drinking yeah. fresh coconuts with... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and even then it would be some sort of disorder because, you know, you'd become obsessed with coconuts and nothing else. and. <laughs> Or, like, getting the best tan possible. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I had someone actually ask me once if I thought she was tanorexic because she couldn't see how tan she was. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah, we laugh. Yeah. We laugh, so don't cry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I probably was tanorexic as well, actually, (laughs) if you were to know my past history. But my obsession with tanning, I'll just say, was because it made me look thinner. So I tanned like a maniac, and then I ended up, like, I ended up with uh, melanoma. Like, I had to... I have a big scar on my leg from this ugly mole that had to be removed. Uh, That one on my back. It wasn't cancer, but it was... uh... I've been told to act as though I'm allergic to the sun since then. I know, me too. Oh, it's so, it's so hard. It's not that I want the tan, but it's just that I like being out in the sun. But um, yeah, no, anyways, I had a distorted relationship with tanning as well. <laughs> yep. uh, <laughs> it is possible. But as we uh, wrap things up here, the last question that I like to ask all of my guests is, what is the most fearless thing that you have done? And I know you mentioned a few things, but... Yeah. Oh, That's a really tough one. I think just living is the most fearless thing, you know, it, the choice to actually live my life as opposed to just, you know, surviving my life, I think was, 
was probably like scared the hell out of me, but definitely the most fearless thing. Mm-hmm. So good. And you really are living it, living it up now, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing my best. I'm actually going to visit Kyla in August. We just decided. Amazing. Yay, so more travel, more life, more activities. It's great. Yeah, so good. And so where can uh, where can people find more of you? Uh, my website, which is, uh, yep, should be done construction by now. It's uh, kellybows.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y-B-O-A-Z, or Z if you're American, uh, .com. And my Twitter handle is at Kelly underscore Bose. Same goes for Instagram. And I'm on the Facebook, too, with a Kelly Bose page. Awesome. And how do you help people? Uh, in what capacity? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, like, what do you do? Like, you're, like you, you're obviously a nutritionist. So how, like, how, do, you know, what, do you have coaching available? Like, how do you yes, help people? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Um, <laughs> That's okay. I, uh, yeah, I see private clients uh, in Toronto or via Skype. And I do uh, speaking around the city as well. Cool. Well, so good. And I can't believe that we really only connected, like actually connected after I'd moved out of Toronto. <laughs> I'm just like, why is this happening? <laughs> We could have been friends. <laughs> it's true. And then maybe you wouldn't have moved away. I know. And we, we actually went to the same school as well. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. Like different classes, different years. But uh, yeah, so cool. I, I kick myself for not having like reached out to you sooner because I'd heard of you for a while. I'd seen your work and knew who you were. But Likewise. Um, because I'm sometimes such an introvert, I just like didn't... <laughs> anything it's that fearless thing we gotta reach out better <laughs> I know I know yeah, yeah. I, thought uh, you were, I thought you were probably too cool to want to talk to me oh so. whatever <laughs> whatever um well yeah hopefully you'll make it out here sometime to the west coast and, oh it'll happen and, yay it's got to happen yeah, and then you'll want to move here too but <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for all of your time and sharing your story and all your beautiful insights. I just think you have uh, so much good stuff going on and you're such a role model and I'm excited to just continue to see what you're putting out into this world and to share that with everyone listening today. So thank you so much, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Rock on. If you like what you've heard, please head to iTunes and leave me a review. I would be so grateful if you took two minutes to do that for me. And don't forget to head to summerinandin.com or summerthenutritionist.com to grab your free rule breakers guide to rock in your bod. Until next time, rock on. (laughs) 